Aloha. You are listening to a message from Shorebreak Church. If you have been blessed by this week's audio message, please join us in the mission of making disciples by partnering with us in prayer or by giving financially. Partner with us by visiting shorebreakchurch.com. Mahalo. Amen. We can remain standing and make our way to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and we'll begin in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be amongst us by the power of your Spirit to display the beauties and the glories of your Son, Jesus, to us this morning. Father, you say that your Word is living and active. Father, may your Word pierce and judge the intentions and the desires of our hearts, Lord, this morning. For your glory, amen. You may be seated. A quick announcement or reminder. Um, if you have responded to the gospel and God has done a great work of salvation in your life, the Bible calls you to be baptized. So this Wednesday, the 15th, we are going to be meeting right here at the coffee lounge in the lobby at 7 p.m., 
So if you are ready to be baptized or if you have a question on what baptism is, would love for you to come. We'll be discussing what baptism means and what it looks like. Going back to Mark 10, we have a lot of scriptural ground to cover. I'll basically break the sermon into three parts. First, we'll look at Jesus and his way to glory through suffering and death. Secondly, we will explore the disciples and their idea of greatness. And then we'll see how we can apply these truths to us today. So as we unpack God's word, I pray that we see Jesus as the answer to our desire for greatness. Last week, in our text, we looked at the rich young man and his interaction with Jesus. He asked Jesus a very valid question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus went on to expose his heart. Jesus showed him that his love was misplaced. And sadly, the rich young man was not willing to follow Jesus' advice. And then Jesus went on to say how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And after more discussions, we see in our text today that as they are on the road to Jerusalem, the people, the disciples, they are amazed and they are afraid because the message of Jesus was so radical. And today, as we look at this gospel account before us, we see that Jesus and his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem. This is actually their last journey to Jerusalem. And what we have before us is a very interesting dialogue in which Jesus engages with his disciples. We read that Jesus takes the 12 disciples and tells them, what was going to happen to him. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus's Incoming suffering is weighing heavily upon his heart. And he begins to disclose the deep angst of his heart to his disciples, to his earthly friends. He lets them in on one of the greatest mysteries, on the great plan of redemption that God has prepared before the foundations of the world. Revelations 13.8 tells us that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the world was spoken, spoken into existence, God prepared to display his glory and his love by giving his son Jesus to suffer and die for the sins of the world. The creation of this world would not be possible without the slain lamb of God. 
Without this great plan of redemption, there is no world as we know it. And the reason for that is sin. The day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and sinned against God, God did not obliterate them. He did not destroy them. But he pointed them to Jesus in Genesis 3.16 because this plan of redemption was already set in motion before the world was created. If it was possible for us to go back in time and erase the cross, just get rid of that part of history, the world would not exist. As we have heard a few weeks ago, Travis in his sermon said, quote, Because God is good, he has to deal with sin. And if he would not deal with sin, he would fail to be good, end quote. So for God to deal with sin without the cross means that we are all dead. It means that creation is dead because the Bible says in Romans that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and the wages of sin is what? It is death. Without this plan of redemption, there is no world as we know it. That is why the cross, the death of Jesus, is the greatest display of God's glory. Everything that God does, he does with his glory as the number one priority. Even in loving and dying for us, God's main goal is his glory. And here in our story, we see how Jesus is accomplishing his glory. For Jesus, the way to glory, the way to greatness, was to be obedient to the will of his Father. And the will of the Father was for Jesus to redeem people that God loved. To be obedient to the will of the Father meant that Jesus had to leave his glorious home in heaven, become a man, live among men, serve and love them, and then be tortured, humiliated, mocked, spit at, beaten and whipped, ultimately death. That's Jesus' way to glory. Hebrew 2.9 tells us, but, see, but we see him who for a while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus' way to be crowned with glory and with honor was through suffering and death. The way Jesus gained the highest form of respect, recognition, and praise was through serving, suffering, and dying, and ultimately resurrecting on the third day, defeating sin and death. That is Jesus' way to glory. I know, I know that all of this might sound real technical to some of us, and I mean th these are some big theological truths that we're tossing around, but I hope we get a little glimpse of this at least. I hope we understand where Jesus is coming from. This suffering and death that he is foretelling to his disciples is not something random and out of the blue. There's a whole context to these words and to his plan. 
This is really important to Jesus. It is heavy on his heart. Every move he makes is fully calculated and in line with the eternal purpose and will of his Father. So as Jesus is sharing with his disciples the suffering that will take place in his life, they, in turn, completely miss the point. It's like when you go and you pour out your heart to your spouse or a good friend or someone that you love, you share with them something that is really important and concerning to you, and they completely ignore you and say something like, hey, what do you think about my new car? How do you like my nails? That is exactly what's happening here in our text. The disciples don't get it. In fact, this is the third time that Jesus is telling them about his coming death. The first time, Peter tried to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Not a good day when God calls you Satan. But that's what you get when you interfere, when you interfere with his will. The second time that Jesus tells his disciples about his death and resurrection, the Bible says that they did not understand what he was talking about and were afraid to ask him. They were afraid of the implications. It was good for them to be with Jesus. They didn't want him to be gone. And so as this third time comes around, Jesus gets very specific about the way this is going to happen. And sadly, the disciples clearly have their own agenda in mind. They also want to be in glory, and they have their own desires to be great. And this becomes very evident when we look at the way James and John respond to Jesus' words. After this great revelation of Jesus' future, they respond by saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What just happened? What is going on? Jesus just finished describing to them the most humiliating, the most unselfish moment that will take place in history. And their response is a self-centered, self-promoting attitude of pride. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, is how they respond to Jesus foretelling his death. And so we read that Jesus asks them, what do you want for me to do for you? And what follows is a request that is actually more ridiculous than the question itself. They say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Wait, did you guys just miss everything that Jesus said? Did you guys hear the cost this glory will come to Jesus? He will be mocked. He will be spit at, whipped and killed. That is the cost of glory. Many commentators say that the disciples had selective hearing, just like many of us today. The only thing that the disciples wanted to hear when Jesus gathered them, the only thing they wanted to hear is when Jesus said, we are going to Jerusalem. They didn't want to do anything with pain, suffering, or death. 
And that is pretty evident from the other two times that Jesus told them about his death. But the idea of them going to Jerusalem was exhilarating. It was exciting to them. It's been a while since they've been in Jerusalem, and this is their last journey that they will be taking there. Jerusalem, being the holy and royal city of David, has a lot of messianic meaning to the Jews and to these disciples. At this point, the fame of Jesus has spread like wildfire, and the people in Jerusalem are ready to make Jesus king. And the disciples know all about it. They feel the tension in the air. They hear the rumors. There is no denying that the promised Messiah is here. Their expectations of Jesus are on a completely different level from the reality that Jesus is so simply telling them about. They have immersed themselves so deeply in their own expectations of Jesus. They are so consumed with their own plan to glory that they have completely missed everything Jesus just told them. And they had every reason to believe that they were right. The air was charged with these expectations. It was really easy for them to excuse the words of Jesus. As we will see later on, as we continue in Mark, they were getting a whole rally ready in Jerusalem to welcome Jesus. The disciples are excited. And that is so evident by the request that they make to Jesus. We see there's tension among them. They all have an inflated view of themselves, not just James and John. And as we saw earlier in chapter 9, they were arguing with, with each one who is greater. Positions of authority and rank are so important to them, and now that they are finally going to Jerusalem, and they think they, they think they know what's about to happen, and so they go for the power grab. Jesus is about to be king. No king rules alone. Every king has advisors. Every king has a right-hand man. Every king gives authority to others. So James and John, as soon as they hear the key word, Jerusalem, knowing what's happening out there, immediately make their request. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And the Bible tells us that the other ten disciples, listening to the requests of James and John, became indignant, meaning they were angry and irritated, not because James and John misunderstood the plan of Jesus but because they were playing the same game. They wanted those positions. They wanted places of authority and honor. They constantly argued about it. And here's what's crazy. The disciples and Jesus are in the same environment. They are together at all times. Jesus is constantly teaching them the truths of his kingdom. Yet their heart's desire, motives, expectations, and ways to achieve glory and greatness could not be further apart. Jesus is marked by submission to the will of his Father. He became a servant to his creation and is achieving greatness by laying down his life. But the disciples, 
they are filled with an inflated self-worth and are reaching and grabbing over one another for positions of authority and power that do not even exist. There's only one key element that makes this delusion possible, and that is sin. The way sin can alter our perception of God and the truth that he teaches is insane. Sin has far greater implications than we can even begin to realize. Our heart and mind can be so twisted that we can take even the words of God from his mouth and make it fit our own desires. It's pretty evident with what's happening with the disciples. Let's look at how Jesus responds to this drama. He tells James and John, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus tells them, You have no idea what you're talking about, guys, and takes it right back to the issue that they are trying to avoid. What is this cup that Jesus is drinking? What is this baptism that he's talking about? These are terms, these are symbols for suffering and death that was coming to Jesus. Jesus is again attempting to get his point across. A true road to greatness, the only way to glory is through suffering. There's no other way. That is all I got for you. You want to be great? You have to participate in what your leader is participating in. And that is not the answer they want to hear. And the immediate response from James and John, we are able, proves that these guys still don't know what they are talking about. They are naive to what is happening. And they are missing the weight of Jesus' words. The disciples have completely failed to grasp the importance of Jesus' teaching. Jesus continues to tell James and John, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. Jesus prophetically declares that after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, when the disciples receive the power of the Holy Spirit, their worldview will so radically change, all that Christ has said will finally make sense. The disciples will literally lay down their lives for the cause of Christ, and all the disciples would drink of the same cup of suffering. They were all tortured, following the way to glory of their leader, Jesus. But for now, that is obviously not the case. Jesus, knowing the desires of his disciples' hearts, knowing their hunger for power, tells them, you know that those who are considered rulers of Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Jesus evaluates the situation of the secular world and the desire for power and authority amongst rulers of the world and of the Gentiles and authority. And he tells them, 
your idea, your concept of glory and greatness has its roots in the way that Gentiles do things. It's coming from the world. It's not coming from me, your teacher. He tells them, it shall not be so among you. And then he introduces them to a truth that is so radically different from the world. He tells them, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus walked all over their parade. He deflated their balloon of self-worth. This is completely against what they want to hear. And again, for the third time in our text today, Jesus points them to himself. Jesus points them to the real way to glory. He says in verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We might think it was simple for Jesus to follow the will of the Father. We might think it was simple for Jesus to go on his way to greatness through suffering. But Jesus had temptations on every corner. He could have easily made himself king over the Jews, and he would have been the best king the world would ever see. All creation was made for him and through him, he had legions of angels at his command. And even being on earth, Jesus could call them at any time. They would flatten this world at his disposal. He could have had all creation serving him on their knees. And yet, it was actually the creator giving his life for the creation. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus begins this dialogue, this conversation with the disciples, with his suffering and death, and he finishes it in the same way. The truth is clear. It's just not what the disciples want to hear. Looking at the disciples and their desire for power and greatness, in this text, it's so easy for us to judge them. But aren't we in the same boat? You see, the desire to be great is not strange to any of us. We are created in the image of a great God. And part of that image is that every human being is born with a desire to be important. In his book titled, How to Make Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie quotes the philosophers of his time and writes, quote, Sigmund Freud said that everything you and I do springs from two motives, the sex urge and the desire to be great. There is one longing almost as deep, almost as imperious as the desire for food or sleep that is seldom gratified. And it's what Freud calls the desire to be great. It's what John Dewey calls the desire to be important, end quote. Looking at the culture, looking at their civilization, these secular men come to the conclusion that what motivates people, what drives them, is the desire to be great, the desire to be important. 
And Jesus, looking at the, at the world of his time and looking at his disciples, is making the same conclusion. He's saying, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lowered it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. All of us have the desire to be great. Maybe we're not like the disciples, and we don't really care about power and authority, even though that is the case for some of us. But the question is, in what way do you express your desire for greatness? What is your way to glory? Maybe you're like the rich young man from the previous story, and you find your identity in riches and possessions. Your way to glory is your stuff. Or maybe your image is the way you express your desire for greatness. The way people perceive you is so important to you that you will do anything to display yourself a certain way. For some of us, we find our importance in our success. Success in our business, career, success in our workplace, in our education, our family life, and the list goes on and on. And these things may not be wrong in and of themselves. The ability to achieve and accomplish things is actually a God-given gift. That's why capitalism works. We celebrate when we buy a new house. We throw a party when we are finally done with our education. We rejoice when we get that promotion or that new job opportunity. But the problem is, when we think we can get Jesus the same way we buy a car or a house. The issue is when we think we can inherit eternal life the way we got our promotion at work. Just look at the disciples. They thought that they could get glory with Jesus by applying the principles of the Gentiles to the kingdom of God. Jesus tells them, stop. It shall not be so among you. What causes this delusion? What is it that's at the heart of the issue? The Bible calls it sin. Sin causes us to have an inflated view of ourselves. Sin is, sin is what messes with our perception of God and his word. Sin has corrupted our worldview. That is why we take the good God-given gifts and turn them into gods. That is why we think we are so much better than our neighbor. Sin is why we take our accomplishments and achievements and think we, we gained greatness. Sin takes every good intention of the heart and makes them wrong avenues for greatness. And Jesus is telling us today, it shall not be so among you. Living in a time of religious freedom, sometimes it's hard for us to tell which one of us is on the true path to glory and which one of us is like that rich young man or the disciples who think that they have life and religion all figured out 
and hearing the word of God day in and day out, we may be thinking we are on the right track, but we are actually missed the mark by a mile. Church, our glory is not found in this world. Our glory is found in Jesus. Our glory is in what he accomplished through his suffering on the cross. Our glory is in the eternal life that is to come, and there is nothing that this world could offer that will ever compare with the glory of Jesus. We may be persecuted, we may endure suffering, and if this world takes away all that we have, even our own life, it could never take away from us our glorious Jesus. May we be driven by the glory of Jesus. What strikes me about this text is how patient Jesus is with his disciples. Even as they are being naive in their sin, Jesus is not giving up. He's continuing on the road to Jerusalem where he will lay down his life for their naive sin. And today, Jesus is patiently extending his love and grace to you. He has paid the price for our sin. Find your glory in Jesus. Let him be the ultimate desire of your life. He is far more satisfying than anything that this world could ever offer. Count the cost and realize the greatest things in this world cannot even begin to compare with the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you have given the most precious thing you had. You have displayed your love to us so greatly through the suffering and death of your son, Jesus. Father, this love, this glory has cost you so much. Lord, may we not be consumed by this world. May we be consumed by the glory of Jesus. May we be driven by the desire to honor Jesus. Lord, may your words just go forth and change the way we perceive things, the way we understand your word, Father. Remove the sin that so often blinds our hearts and minds and prevents us from seeing your word. Father, we ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please visit shorebreakchurch.com to stay connected or to share your story.